You're listening to Good Hustle, a podcast about bad teams. I'm Andrew Mackey. With the World Cup over and association football or soccer ready to start back up this weekend, Good Hustle is putting on our cleats and heading onto the pitch. Now, before you change the channel, please do not do that. Let me try to convince you one more time. I am a lifelong soccer fan. I bought into the frenzy during the 1994 World Cup. The United States was hosting it back then, and when we took the field when I was an 11-year-old kid, we took the field in the greatest jersey of all time. It was a faux denim shirt emblazoned with white stars. My hometown of Detroit was the site of the opening game of that World Cup, which saw the United States tie Switzerland 1-1 in the Pontiac Silverdome. I was hooked. A few years later, when I would go to college, I adopted a Premier League team. In fact, it wasn't just me. It was me and a couple of my friends who were also into fantasy football at the time. Most of these picks were based on a Bill Simmons column when he was writing for ESPN's Page 2 that compared Premier League teams to NFL teams. My friend Brennan and I chose Newcastle United since they were compared to the Cleveland Browns. And it also didn't hurt that I had a family friend from the area. So after many years of suffering, bad soccer, not enjoying myself, relegation, and not being able to see my team on TV, and of course the death of the family friend in 2014, I was done. I asked my wife to pick a new team for my birthday based on the criteria she chose. And it's a very specific, highly scientific criteria. We're talking uniform colors, how those uniform colors look on me, how attractive were the players, the vibe of the fan base, and if she'd actually like to travel there in the future to take me to a game. She picked North London side Tottenham Hotspur, and I've never looked back. My friend Russell likes to remind me of my jumping ship, but it's easy for him. Russell is from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. His favorite team in all of sports is the Boston Red Sox. The Boston Red Sox own the Premier League team Liverpool, so Liverpool it is for him. Good friend of the pod, Meredith, also recently just got into soccer and has also chosen Liverpool as her club, so things are tough for me. Unfortunately for me, the Ford family does not own any Premier League teams, which is probably a good thing for any fan bases in England. As we know, the Fords don't have the best success with their football teams in American football. I'm sure association football would be even worse. But the nice part about picking a Premier League team is that your Saturdays become even more awesome. Premier League games usually occur on Saturday or Sunday. And if you're a college football fan and you enjoyed the World Cup, I can't recommend enough picking a Premier League team to call your own. The games start before your college football games do on the East Coast. So if you're used to a noon kickoff, you can watch Manchester City or Manchester United or Liverpool play a 9 o'clock game on most mornings. Plus, you get to avoid watching college game day for three hours. You'll want to buy yourself a scarf that'll look good and fashionable in the fall and winter seasons. And of course, nobody will question why you're drinking at 9 o'clock in the morning if it's for, oh say, the Merseyside Derby, the game between Liverpool and Everton. Another one of my absolute favorite media shows to consume is Men and Blazers. It's available on NBC Sports Network, and they also have a great podcast. Plus, they just came out with a book. So if you're interested in soccer, pick up the book. Make sure you're watching the show and listen to the podcast. It's a good way to understand the humor of soccer. So that's why soccer is important to me, and that's why I think it should be important to you. When Simmons wrote his article, he talked about how Premier League teams reminded him of NFL teams, or at least how their fan bases could interact. I would change that just a little bit. I would say that 
they remind me more of college football teams. There's the potential for a greater degree of talent discrepancy between the top teams and the bottom teams. And one of the biggest rivalries in all of association football is in Manchester, England, where you have two of the largest teams in the world right now, Manchester United and Manchester City. Manchester City is just coming off of a championship season. They were the winners of the Premier League last year. So all their fans in their sky blue uniforms are getting ready to enjoy the season ahead as the defending champs. But it wasn't always like this. And this episode of Good Hustle, we're going to dig into life before the Abu Dhabi Sports Group. We're going to dig into a time before Manchester City was flush with cash. We're digging into a time where Manchester City was just trying to survive. And like many of us, that would be in the mid-90s. So I want everyone to get excited and get ready. We're heading out to a place where their fans like to refer to their team as everyone's second favorite club. This is episode 8 of Good Hustle, the 1997-98 Manchester City Football Club. Chapter 1. Blue Moon. Members of the St. Mark's Church of England in West Gorton, Manchester, were trying to solve a problem within their community. The problem was that there was a lot of violence, a lot of gangs, and a lot of alcoholism. On top of that, there also were not a lot of jobs. So two church wardens, and even though their names are in English, bear with me, I'm probably going to butcher them, William Bestow and Thomas Goodberry, wanted to do something about it. They wanted to give local men something better to do with their time. So they started a football club. All men were invited, and they were welcome to join the club at St. Mark's Church of England, regardless of their religion. Just please stop joining gangs, behaving badly, and causing trouble in the town. The team's first recorded match occurred on November 13, 1880, against another church team from Macclesfield. St. Mark's lost the match 2-1, and only won one match during their inaugural 1880-1881 season, with a victory over Stallybridge Clarence in March. There was also a team in the area called Ashton North End, whose nickname was the Mighty Onions. Sadly, these teams are gone, but their name shall live on forever. Also, it's at this point that I'm going to go ahead and throw out a bit of verbiage that you'll hear me say. I might use the word side to describe a team. I might use the word pitch to describe a field or stadium. It's just the words they use. Pitch, side. You're going to maybe hear me slip up and say that every once in a while. Just know that I'm not trying to confuse you. It's just the terms they use over there, so I'm going to use them. But I am still going to say soccer. I'm an American. So this team at St. Mark's would sort of jump around a lot, and by summer of 1887, they were starting to undergo a great change. For start, they once again had to move, and they were trying to find a playing location that they could call home for a long time. After some searching, they eventually found one near a railway in Ardwick. While the field was pretty junky, uh, it was uneven and muddy, and it's not necessarily the best place to play a soccer game, Either necessity, ambition, or desperation finally won out, and they agreed to rent it. And the price they paid for their new field was £10 for seven months. Manchester City historian Gary James would argue that the disappointment of the previous five fields instilled in the club a determination to go the extra distance this time and build a lasting field, rather than continue to play on and be evicted from other facilities for the rest of time. The nice part for them was the new location was close by the Hyde Road Hotel, 
and the club soon struck up a good relationship with the landlord of the hotel, Stephen Chester Thompson, who allowed them use of the hotel's facilities in exchange for the club officially basing themselves there. It's a win-win. And it becomes more of a win for Chester Thompson when he receives the license from the club to run all of the bars at the stadium. Another offshoot of the link with the Hyde Road Hotel would be that the club would get its first nickname, the Brewery Men. The first match at the brand new Hyde Road Stadium was chosen to be against Salford AFC. It was going to take place on September 10th, 1887. So amidst all the pomp and circumstance and excitement for opening up a brand new stadium, something went wrong. The other team didn't turn up. These are the hazards of 19th century scheduling, I supposed. But they would play at the ground until 1923, before moving to a site on Main Road, where they would stay until 2003. So they definitely solved the problem with facilities. Another issue that came up was that the club was going to have to change their name. They were no longer based within the limits of just Gorton. It was decided it would be deceptive to continue to go by the name Gorton Association Football Club. So, the club officially renamed themselves the Ardwick Association Football Club. They were inheriting the name of their new home district. The last issue that would be tackled by the club in the summer of 1887 would be the status of their amateurism. While the club had officially been amateur since its creation, for the first time that summer, it was decided to award one player a weekly salary of five shillings. By doing that, the Ardwick Association Football Club became a professional organization. And things just kept getting better for Ardwick. In 1891, they won the Manchester Cup for the first time, and they defeated arch-nemesis Newton Heath, one nothing in the final. A few years later, they had financial troubles, and the club was forced to reorganize again. Ardwick was changing their name for a final time, becoming Manchester City Football Club Limited. They became a registered company on April 16, 1894. Manchester City would win their first championship during the 1936-37 season. They'd win it again 30 years later during 1967-68. City were co-founders of the Premier League, the top level of football in all of England, in 1992. But they finished mid-table, which is ninth. They endured three seasons of struggle before finally being relegated in 1996. And this is another opportunity to talk about how cool the Premier League is. So what happens in the Premier League is they have the top division, which is the Premier League. Beneath that is the first division, and then the second division. So it goes Premier League, first division, second division, and so on. The cool thing about this is they run on a system of promotion and relegation, which means every year the three worst teams in the Premier League get sent down of division. And the top three teams in the first division, well, they're going on up. They're going to the Premier League. It would be like right now the Baltimore Orioles are the worst team in all of baseball. If they finished the season dead last, they would go down to the minor leagues. They would become a AAA team. And the top AAA club, like let's say the Columbus Clippers, suddenly would become a pro team. The stakes are very high. There's a lot of money at stake. Each division drop means that your team is further and further away from making millions of dollars. It's a huge deal. So in 1996, Manchester City was kicked out of that big money-making Premier League. They were going down, and they were headed to the first division. For years, Manchester City had had a round badge. It was their logo that they wore on their chest. It had a ship on it. It said Manchester City. It had been around for a long time. In 1997, they were done with that. They had just been relegated, and they decided to change their logo. So they went with 
a golden eagle with three stars above it. And at the bottom of the whole thing, they put a Latin phrase, superbia in proelio, which means pride in battle. Man City issued a press release trying to explain it to people, you know, saying that they wanted to have a more continental feel to the design and that it would be progressive and move the team into a new forward direction. Instead, the reason they really wanted to do that is that the club had developed a problem with licensing, and a lot of people were able to make counterfeit-looking Manchester City goods, which the club thought was devaluing their logo. So they changed it. Come the start of the 1997-98 season, Manchester City had brand new logos. They were trying to appear to be progressive, forward-thinking, ready to bring the club back into the Premier League. Instead, they played some pretty bad soccer, and it would be one of the darkest periods in the history of Manchester City. So let's dig into that disaster of a season, shall we? Chapter 2. You Saw Me Standing Alone The 1997-98 season was Manchester City's second in the first division following relegation from the Premier League in 95-96. The year before had been turbulent. Man City had five different managers during the course of the season, three permanent and two interim, including Steve Koppel, who would resign the job after just 32 days in charge. Frank Clark became the team's leader in December 1996, and it is Frank Clark who is in charge when we begin the preseason. Despite speculation that said that he wanted out of the team, the Manchester City player of the season in 1996-97, Georgie Kinkladze, decided to stay with the team and signed a three-year contract that made him at the time the highest player in Manchester City's history. They also went out and signed striker Lee Bradbury, who joined for a club record transfer fee of three million pounds. They also picked up defender Tony Vaughan from Ipswich Town. They also acquired a midfielder, Gerard Vikens from BV Vendum for 500,000 pounds. I'm pretty confident I butchered those names as well, but hey, we'll keep playing. In an early season interview with the Sunday Times, manager Frank Clark was complaining about how many players he had on his roster. The squad is too big, but a lot of the players are on good contracts, which other clubs won't match. You can't blame them for staying. I like that Clark is pretty much saying that because we used to be a Premier League side, we have a lot of players who make more money than they deserve, and they're not going anywhere. Clark would also say that they had a lot of good youngsters on the team, but they couldn't play because we had so many older guys getting paid a lot more that needed time. It was definitely a problem with the team's development. Off the field, on top of the new badge, they also changed the main color of their jerseys. It normally is a sky blue, but this year it was going to be a little bit darker, and they gave it the name Laser Blue. Cool. To make matters worse for Frank Clark, the Times listed bookmakers' odds before the start of the season. It had Manchester City as 6-1 to one joint second favorites to win the first division. That meant that people were expecting this team to get promoted. Back to the Premier League we go. So the season started with a home match against Portsmouth. Most of the new signings made their debuts for Manchester City during that first game, and they tied 2-2, with Weekend scoring a goal in his first game for the club. Then the team would go on the road to Sunderland, who was opening a brand new stadium, and they lost that game 3-1. Afterwards, it was a draw with Tranmere Rovers, and then another loss to Charlton Athletic. 
They would get their first win finally in their fifth game against Nottingham Forest, a game they won 3-1. to one. It was then a draw and a loss before an emphatic 6-0 win at home over Swindon Town, and that would be as good as it gets for this Manchester City team. In October, their new signing Lee Bradbury, the guy who the club paid a record for of £3 million to get, he cracked his vertebrae. And then their other goal scorer, Uwe Rossler, well, he got injured too, so they were left with few options in attack. So few options that they would only score one goal in all of October. And that goal did not come until October 29th. Late October is also the time that things got even worse for the club, as star player Georgie Kinkladze crashed his Ferrari and sustained a back injury that required 30 stitches and he would miss two matches. Hashtag first world problems. By November, City was already in the relegation zone, with just three wins in 16 matches. Things were about to look up for City, though. They were about to play the last place team in all of the first division, Huddersfield Town. And in fact, ten years earlier, one of the biggest wins in the club history had came against that same team. They beat them 10-1. So with fans looking forward to getting the season turned around, the exact opposite happened. And it almost led to a full-out rebellion. Manchester City lost the game 1-0. It was Hutterfield's town, first away victory of the season. Choruses of, you're not fit to wear the shirt would ring out during the match. And afterwards, 2,000 supporters held a demonstration demanding the resignation of chairman Francis Lee. After that, the club would rebound and tie Sheffield United before beating Bradbury City at home. But then, things took another turn for the worse. They lost 3-1 to to their local rivals, Stockport County. The club picked up enough wins here and there to at least stay out of the relegation zone before Christmas. On Boxing Day, which is a huge day for soccer in the United Kingdom, they lost to Crew Alexandra. Then, they'd lose to Nottingham Forest. They'd beat Portsmouth, but then it was another loss to Sunderland, followed by a draw with Charlton Athletic, a scoreless draw with the Tranmere Rovers, a scoreless draw with Norwich City, a loss to Bury, a loss to Ipswich Town. And during those games with Tranmere, Norwich, Bury, and Ipswich, they only scored one goal. That's really bad. So here we are in February, and you're now at the very bottom of the league. Manchester City, who was a 6-1 favorite to get advancement to the Premier League, are in dead last in the first division. At this point, Chairman Francis Lee is like that dog in the cartoon with the room on fire who says, This is fine. He does take some action, though, as all of these losses would be enough to cost Frank Clark his job as manager. He would be fired after the loss to Ipswich Town. He would get replaced by Joe Royal, who had been out of the game since resigning as Everton's manager over a year ago. He's now the sixth manager at Manchester City in two seasons. Where do we go from here? Chapter 3 Without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. City would start to climb its way out of the relegation zone during Joe Royal's first four matches. They got big wins that they needed to stay alive. They beat Swindon Town. They beat West Bromwich Albion. They beat Huddersfield Town. But then, something bad happened. They had to play the other teams that were trying to fight their way out of the relegation zone. And guess what? They lost virtually all of them. After losing at home to Oxford United, and then a loss on the road to Port Vale, by March 16th, Francis Lee had seen enough, and he resigned as chairman of Manchester City Football Club. The guy Lee had replaced 
received death threats when he was on his way out. So maybe just a bad run of form and a loss to Port Vale isn't the worst thing in the world. But still, the chairman was gone. Heading into the second-to-last game of the season, Man City would need a lot of help. But losing to Queen's Park Rangers didn't do them any favors. Heading into the last day of the season, City would need a lot of help. In order to avoid relegation, City would need Port Vale and Portsmouth to lose their final matches, on top of beating Stoke themselves. In the end, City beat Stoke, but Port Vale and Portsmouth also won that day. That meant that Manchester City was being relegated. Gone were dreams of promotion to the Premier League. Now, they would have to fight and claw just to get back into the first division. Man City had become the second team in history to have won the European Cup and then find itself in its own country's third division. That's got to be quite the emotional roller coaster. Now, Manchester City was two divisions away from the Premier League, having been relegated twice in three seasons. The next season, Manchester City finished third in the second division. Now, I know earlier I mentioned that three teams get called up, but the way it works is the first two teams are automatically promoted. Teams three, four, five, and six have to go to a playoff. So Manchester City was in a playoff for promotion to the first division. The first semifinal saw third place Manchester City taking on sixth place Wigan Athletic. The two teams tied in the first game 1-1. But during the second game, Manchester City won 1-0. They would advance to the second division playoff final at Wembley Stadium on May 30th, 1999 to take on fourth place Gillingham. The winner would get promoted up to the first division, just one step away from the Premier League. During the final, Manchester City was wearing their away uniforms. And these uniforms are pretty famous in Manchester City history. They've got quite a lot of look for them. They're a vertical stripe. One is navy and the other one is highlighter yellow. It's something that the team had never worn before. Some called it garish. Others thought it was just flat ugly. But that's the uniform that Manchester City wore when they took the field against Gillingham. The game was tight at Wembley in front of 76,935 fans. How soccer works is there are two halves of 45 minutes each. Depending on how much time is spent celebrating goals or rolling around on the pitch for injuries, the referees can add up to their discretion any amount of time after the 45th and 90th minutes to make sure the full game gets in. Since this is a cup final, if the game happened to be tied, they would play an additional 30 minutes after the 90, which is sort of like overtime. If nobody has scored after that, or if the game is still tied, it goes to penalty kicks. The game was very tight. There were no goals in the first half as both teams were trying to figure each other out with so much on the line. In the second half, things got exciting. In the 81st minute, Gillingham player Carl Asaba would give his team the lead. Then, just six minutes later, Gillingham's Robert Taylor added a second goal. With only a few minutes of normal time left and two goals behind, many Manchester City fans considered the game lost and began to leave the stadium. However, in the 90th minute, Manchester City's Kevin Horlock scored a goal to make it 2-1. And then, just as injury time was about to expire, Paul Dickoff scored an equalizer, sending the game into extra time. With no goals being scored in the extra time, the match would be decided by penalty shootout. The winner would see promotion to the first division. The loser stayed in the second. Manchester City would win on penalty kicks, 3-1. They were back in the first division one more step closer to the Premier League. The game is considered one of the best in the history of English soccer, 
The highlights are constantly shown on television. It's a game famous among Manchester City fans. Although the game technically marked the lowest ever league finish in Manchester City's history, the incredible circumstance by which they were able to win is one of the proudest moments in the club's history, with many fans describing it as feeling as good as winning a top division title and being more important to the club's future than anything. The victory ensured their first season in English football's third tier ended with a promotion. It brought some level of success to the club after two relegations. The jersey, the navy and highlighter yellow vertical striped shirt, became one of the most iconic symbols in the club's history. After gaining promotion to the first division, Manchester would win a second successive promotion, coming second in the first division behind Charlton Athletic. They would be back in the Premier League after a five-year absence. They would be relegated again, though, in 2001. Former England manager Kevin Keegan would replace Joe Royal as manager of the club to close out the season. He achieved immediate return as the team made it back to the Premier League by winning the 2001-2002 Division I Championship. They broke records for the number of points gained and goals scored in the process. By 2002-2003, they were back in the Premier League, but they were saying farewell to an old friend. It was their last season at their main road facility. In 2008, the club was purchased by Abu Dhabi United Group, and from there, everything would change. A massive increase in spending made the club more competitive. By 2011-2012, they were fighting to the very last game for a championship, with two goals in injury time, including one scored almost five minutes after normal time it had lapsed, just like against Gillingham. It would result in a almost literal last-minute championship for Manchester City. It was their first in 44 years. They would go on to win again in 2013, 2014, and just last season. On top of all the demons that the team was getting rid of, they also decided to say farewell to the Military Eagle three-star logo. They were going back to the rounded circle with the ship on it and the words Manchester City. Only this time, they decided to add something to it. 1894, the year the club was founded. From the two church wardens at St. Mark's in West Gorton, the team that couldn't find a home and eventually found one, that group that grew into Manchester City Football Club has now won five top division championships. That team is now valued at $2.5 billion. The little club's rival, Newton Heath, they also have a different name too. They're known as Manchester United, the most well-known soccer team in the entire world, and as of 2018, worth $3.6 billion. Their rivals have won 20 top division championships. They've been the champions of Europe three times. The 2018-19 season will start this weekend, and it'll be Manchester City's 117th season of competitive football. They will be defending their Premier League championship. The away shirts that Man City will be wearing this year draw inspiration from the 98-99 season. It's a navy blue shirt with highlighter yellow and sky blue vertical stripes. Have a season you'd like featured on Good Hustle? Let me know at listentogoodhustle.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Andrew Mackey and on Instagram at Hello Mackey, and that's spelled M-A-C-K-E-Y. Good Hustle is created and hosted by Andrew Mackey. This week's research credits go to Wikipedia, The Guardian, ESPN, and Manchester City Into the Alps. That's a supporter's newsletter. Special thanks to my doves cooing in the background while I tried to record and Roger Bennett at Men and Blazers for being an amazing person. We'll see you next time. <laughs>